before we look into the word. Lord, I submit myself to you, and I pray that all of us in this room will submit ourselves to you and to your word. Help us, Lord, not to stand in judgment of your word. Grant us humility of hearts to receive your word in whatever way it penetrates and begins to challenge us on the level of our motivations, our yearnings, our desires, our real longings that we have. We pray, Father, that you might help us to see Christ as being our greatest joy and that which we need more than anything at all in all the world, that Christ might be the one who truly satisfies us and changes us. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Christian author and missionary and philosopher Francis Schaeffer made a very interesting statement about Christians. I think I put it in your notes there in your bulletin. He said this, If we, that is, if we Christians do not show love to one another, the world has a right to question whether Christianity is true. Now, why would he make such a bold statement? Well, the simple answer is, if you know anything about Jesus' comments in John chapter 13, Jesus pretty much said the same thing when Jesus said, By this all men will know that you, speaking of his disciples, <clears throat> all will know that you, my disciples, are, are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So we've been in a sermon series now for a number of weeks together, examining and thinking through the practical implications of the gospel. The gospel as it's applied to everyday life pertaining to this issue of relationships. And the gospel provides, of course, uniquely, and I would argue the only, um, the only force, as it were, that changes the dynamic of relationships as powerfully as, any, as nothing else does, it is the power that provides transforming, sorry, it's the gospel that provides transforming power so that we might be people who have a different motive and incentive to change the way that we relate to people around us. The authors of the New Testament very much wanted to show the practical demonstrations of the, this new dynamic of the gospel in our hearts and how we relate to other people. So they listed 34, up to about 34 different reciprocal commands, different mutual challenges to love each other. Uh, one another commands of the New Testament. So we have now hopefully before you here in page um, 1,393 in your pew Bible. And if your Bible's open to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 21 this morning with another one of these reciprocal commands. He says there, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now this morning we're going to be considering how the gospel uniquely provides incentives, number one, and uniquely provides power to break the chains of selfishness, which really is at the core of people who don't want to yield to someone else, who don't ever want to subject themselves to anybody else. They want to be in control, they want to have the power, they want to be able to do what they want to do, not have anybody in their way. And so selfishness really is the great struggle here that this text is arguing against. And the gospel not only gives us incentives and power, it also is going to provide us, as we continue reading in that Ephesians 5 and 6 passage there, there are going to be equal opportunity applications, I'm going to call it. 
application to any situation you find yourself in in life, and we'll talk about how broad that is, so that the followers of Jesus can replace the idea of selfish living with living that is really living out this kind of concept of mutually loving one another as believers. So let's look first of all then at the gospel incentives to escape from the chains of selfishness. One thing that the gospel does is it exposes our hearts. Not just some of us, not just religious people, the gospel exposes the hearts of every person, every man, every woman, every child. And the gospel uncovers our true inner condition. It, it sort of reveals the real us, the real person that we are. Because really by nature, none of us are people who are others-centered. Fundamentally, the Bible teaches us again and again that our hearts are corrupt. And part of that corruption is that we have an elevated devotion to self. It's natural. We all do it. You don't have to teach your children to do it. You don't have to learn it in school. It's something that's natural that we think about ourselves much more than we do anyone else. And that's why in earlier in Ephesians, the book there that Paul wrote, if you'll notice in chapter 2, Paul speaks about the condition of people in their hearts before they were changed by the gospel. And he reminded them that we, all of us are living in the desires of our self-focused flesh. That is, we yearn to have our own way. And that yearning leads us to indulge in various desires. And that's what we see going on in the challenges of relationships when people are locking horns and people don't want to work together. It's pretty much my way or no way and all this kind of dynamic that we all know goes on. But we all have this hardness of heart. And it, let's be honest, it is hard to yield to others, isn't it? I mean, it's hard enough in driving in a car, right? People aren't going to merge in, and you're like, don't come up here on that right side in front of me. Don't you do that. You know, it's like, I'm not giving an inch to you. You should be waiting in line like the rest of us. You know, we all have this kind of reactions in our hearts. And since we love ourselves more than God, Paul reminds his readers in chapter 4, verse 19 of Ephesians, we've developed a sense of our, our conscience has become somewhat calloused. We're not even seeing half the times in which we are so absorbed in ourselves. Our conscience is really not very sensitive to the fact that we easily rationalize so many different times that it is not only reasonable, but it's necessary that I have my way, that things go my way. And so we assume that life obviously will work best if it works according to my way. And if you've ever been in a marriage relationship and you know that one person says, well, if life goes well when it goes my way, you got somebody else in a marriage relationship and they say, well, life goes best when it goes my way, you know you got yourself a problem because there's no way those two people are going to be very compatible and very close on the deep level if that is their basic orientation. And yet that's where we all live. The gospel reminds us that we really reject God's right to reign over us as our king. Even though God has made everything, God has created all of us, everything that exists, and really the reason why so many of us have our relationships are so strained and so fragmented and so frayed is really this reason. It's because we are living to please ourselves at the core and at the fundamental level in which we live. And the gospel confronts us, the gospel humbles us, 
to face the fact that we so often don't want to hear and don't want to be reminded of, and that is that we are self-centered people. And so the gospel comes to compel us to admit that our real relationship struggles that we have in life, they are the outgrowth of the relationship that we have, struggle and struggles we have with God. Because we're disconnected with God. We are, we are, in a sense, trying to operate in a way that God never designed us to operate, to somehow act independently of Him, rather than acknowledging Him, submitting to Him, and yielding to Him as the one who is ruler of our lives. And because we're not on good terms with God, or because we are replacing God with other things or other people that we are living for, particularly ourselves, we tend to look at other people to provide us what only God can provide to us, whether it's security or meaning or purpose or acceptance or wholeness. We're looking for to find this when we can get people to do what we want them to do or to get people to appreciate us and to see us as being able to be competent or smart or good-looking or talented or whatever it is. We base our sense of self on gaining approval from other people whose opinions that we value more so than we value God's opinion. And we use other people to fill the emptiness of our souls. And that brings us now then to reminding of the gospel that says to us, listen, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are operate in such a different way, consistently, continually, eternally. God has always existed and, and functioned in love, in harmony with each person of the Godhead. This idea of harmonious, loving relationship, out of this kind of relationship, God's nature, obviously, is that he's nothing but love. And so Jesus, out of his selflessness, gives himself for us, people us who are consumed with ourselves. He offers himself as a sacrifice for us. Ephesians 5.2 says that Jesus loved us. Notice the, the outward and the other-centered of that love. Jesus loved us people who are so caught up in ourselves, and that he did so in giving up himself for us and offering and a sacrifice to God. So the gospel insists that we do not have to earn our self-worth with endless attempts to try to improve ourselves or to justify our existence. And that's why I've included in your notes this very helpful quote from Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Mystery of Marriage, this very helpful a quote about what the gospel means. The gospel <clears throat> is that you are so lost and so flawed and so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. But you are also <clears throat> so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for you. In the gospel, you are fully accepted and delighted in by the Father, not because you deserve it, but only by free grace. So what we find in this helpful summary of the gospel is there's a sense in which the gospel humbles us. The gospel will bring us down to the point where we see ourselves as we really are and realize I am full of myself. I need a rescuer. I need somebody to save me. I need to help somebody address these self-focused issues of my heart. And Jesus is the one who has done that. But also the gospel not only humbles us, the gospel says, and that's what First Peter says, humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God, that he might lift you up. 
The gospel lifts us up and says, even though you're so full of yourselves, I will fill you with myself and I will love you and I will lift you up and give you honor and glory you don't deserve. So therefore, it's the gospel, I argue, has, is the only thing that has the power to turn our hearts away from this orientation toward ourselves. To live for ourselves, to live for our own dreams, our own desires, and to give us an orientation of living to rather please the Lord. Look at chapter 5, verse 10, as he reminds them in that same chapter. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. If we are no longer fighting against Christ and we are now saying, Lord Jesus, I do need a Savior and I have received you as my Savior. Therefore, my orientation of my life now is to live to please Him, not just live for myself. So what does this have to do with everyday life? Well, let me suggest to you that every time you are holding a grudge, any time that you are impatient with other people in your life, any time that you are hanging on to a uh, 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 an irritable attitude, you know, where you just have this, uh, you know, things just set you off so easily. Anytime you are magnifying the failings and the faults of other people where you're sort of just focused on those things, obsessing over them, drawing attention to them, and overlooking your own to some great extent. When you misrepresent the truth, you're not being honest with people around you, you're, you're being phony, and you're not really telling the honest acknowledgement of what's really going on within your own heart or really what goes on in what you do or say. If there's in your life a, a desire to insist on having your way, even if it means getting into significant conflict and arguments and you're getting into these knockdown battles and things because you're insistent that you must have things your way, may I suggest that underlying all of those things is that we're looking for love in all the wrong directions. We're looking for control. We're looking for life in all the wrong directions. You see, the love of Christ in the gospel frees us from these idolatrous yearnings in which we are living a life that's so self-absorbed, of self-seeking life. And rather than demanding our rights, rather than insisting on what we believe that we are entitled to, getting to what we think we were really entitled to. The gospel reminds us that God has not given us what we deserve. Jesus' selfless love serves to expose our own selfish hearts and to compel us to live in gratitude. I go back to the scene in which Jesus is with his disciples. They're gathered probably around a U-shaped table in the first century. They didn't sit in chairs that have four legs like we do. Uh, they're all down on the on a pillow with one elbow up and they're all with their legs away from the table and they're all sitting around there. And you got to think to yourself, they're all, they're all sitting there and they're realizing, uh, are we going to start eating yet? Because nobody has washed feet here. There's this awkwardness. There's this strangeness. It's almost like when you sit down and uh, someone's putting all the food on the table and imagine if everyone just stood around the table and one person just sat down and just started eating by themselves. It's like there's an awkwardness here. What's going on here? And so there was this awkwardness going on. And what did Jesus do? He got up and he did the most obvious thing that needed to be done, but nobody was willing to do it. And as he's washing those feet, do you think at that moment those disciples are saying, you know, when he finishes washing my feet, I'm going to make sure that Peter does not eat that last piece of bread. That's mine. 
Do you think they're going to be saying, hey, I want that last piece of lamb over there because that's the one that has my name on it? If somebody's washing your feet and they did it when you really should have been doing it, it's designed to what? Humble us to be what? Living out of gratitude and realizing getting in my own way is not the right way to live in response to what Christ has done for us. Love for imperfect people is the product of the perfect love that God has for imperfect people like you and me. So when it comes then to the gospel, notice what he says here in verse 21. Paul, with his wisdom there from the Holy Spirit, is saying, you know, the idea of being subject to one another, it's to be done with a proper motive, and that is to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. Now, when you first read that, you think, is that in case you think like there's a lightning bolt that's going to come down and zap you if you've done something that's rather self selfish and get your way all the time? It's not the idea of being afraid of God. That's not really a helpful way of looking at that text at all. It's primarily meant to remind us that we are to be, in a sense of, so uh, overwhelmed by God's love and God's greatness, to be filled with wonder about God, living in reverence for God in light of what he's done for me. And so what Paul is saying here is, what's your motive in learning to submit and yield to people around you? You do it because you honor and you have reverence for God who yielded himself in a profound way to meet your needs. So I raise the question in my own heart and I raise the question for your heart perhaps. What motivates you in your life? Deep down on the fundamental level, what is motivating you in how you relate to people around you? What is driving your relationships? Is it the need you have to succeed or to appear successful? Is it the need that you have to be needed? That is, you're the, you're the mother who says, oh, I've got to be here for my children. I've got to have those perfect children. And as if you can't release them when they're getting older and you're doing everything for them still, there's a sense in which you need to be needed. Or you need to be respected by your peers. Is that what drives your relationships? Or do you have the desire for a perfect family? A high GPA that defines who you are? Is it because of your physical appearance? You are living for that because you want to appear a certain way before other people and so that's what you obsess over and you don't want to be around people if you don't look good? If you aren't all together, then I can't deal with you? And that controls how I deal, how, how I relate to other people? If you're motivated by something other than being in wonder and being amazed with and being humbled by the love that God has shown you in Christ, I would say to you, it's perhaps a call of the gospel to get your heart rightly lined up again as to why you're living and how you're living and what you're living for. You'll never be fully liberated to serve the people around you until the love of Christ becomes real in your life in a practical, real way. When we fully appreciate the privileges and the position that we are granted in Christ, then we're, we are going to be less willing Sorry, when we're fully appreciating the privileges and position we have in Christ, we're going to be much more likely than to be willing to let go of our demand to have our way and to have control of other, of, of other people, to make sure that people are doing what I need them to do in order for me to feel complete and whole and fulfilled. 
It's more likely that we appreciate the privileges and position we're given in Christ that we're going to show deference to others. We're going to make sure that we see their needs and not just our own that we're obsessed with. And I would argue it's only the gospel that can do that, my friend. I can't give you a list of 10 little practical steps that you can take to do these at home. It's going to make you successful. It really goes back to finding the gospel applied to our hearts. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in this text. All right, well, that's the first point that we've tried to cover here. I hope you followed the incentives that we have for escaping this idea of the natural proclivity we have to being selfish. Let's consider the second point here in this text, and this is very important. If you don't see this, you're going to say to yourself, well, okay, you've given me this high ideal, and I've tried to, to be more focused on the needs of my wife or my husband or my uh, members of my family or my friends or whatever. It just, I don't seem to be able to do it very well. I do it for one day, and, you know, it just doesn't go well. Well, notice here in this text that the gospel provides power to escape these chains of selfishness. You say, where did you get that? In verse 21, well, I'm going to ask you to zoom out a little bit and look at what's going on before you get to verse 21. As you do that, let me just uh, remind you of the illustration. Um, yesterday, we pulled out a box of uh, a jigsaw puzzle, and uh, this one had, uh, what, 500 pieces? I can't remember how many pieces it had, uh, but uh, I am not a great puzzle um, Put her, put her together, that's not a good word. I don't put together puzzles very well. I'm very slow at the process. Once I've got a couple of the, the outdoor perimeter pieces done, I sort of walk away from the table and say, okay, you guys go right in there and finish that thing up. But with all of these jigsaw puzzles, they are designed to interconnect with other pieces, right? And so in a sense, it would be helpful if we looked at scripture as each verse is like a piece of a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, that's designed to be interconnected with the words around it and before it and after it. For example, as you approach this passage here in chapter 5, verse 21, we got to ask ourselves, how does this passage fit in with what precedes it and what follows it? And how is it connected to those grammatically? Because it is a puzzle piece that needs to fit together grammatically. And look, at, it goes back to verse 18. Actually, 15 and 18 are both uh, helpful to understand here. He says, uh, verse 15, be careful how you walk. Or another way of translating that is be careful how you live, the course of your life. How are we going to live? Well, he says you should live as a wise person, making the most use of your time. The days are evil. And so he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, what is the will of the Lord? Well, he says, don't be drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then from that comes several of these, what are the evidences or the, the fruit of being filled with the Spirit? So notice what, what he's saying here is, he's saying you need to realize that in terms of how you honor God with your life, you need to make a clean break from how people around you are worshiping and honoring their gods of their lives. And so he makes a contrast with how many of the Romans live their lives and their form of worship, for many of them, was to worship the god Pan, P-A-N. And in the worship of God, uh, they believed that it was the god of, the, of, of wine. And so they would oftentimes have these huge parties in which they would just get plastered, drinking the best and the most wine they possibly could. And they are just out of control. There's orgies and many, uh, many forms of, of all sorts of looseness in their behavior. And that's what they believed was the ways in which they could then live under the control of their God 
in a sense. To be intoxicated meant that they could therefore be, in a sense, worshiping their, their God in such a way that they reached this ecstatic experience under the spell, as it were, of this God of Pan. So, so Paul's saying, listen, you make a break with that kind of false way of thinking of worshiping that God. You worship the true and living God by doing what? He says, by understanding what his will is, his will is to what? Is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, let's, we need to clarify what he means there by that, that verb. By the way, he, he says, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it certainly does not mean to be out of control, right? He's making a contrast here. When you're, when you're totally drunk, then you've lost control of many of your higher forms of, of behavior and things like that and abilities. And so uh, what he says is they're going to be under the Spirit's control. That's what he's calling us to do. And what does that mean? Well, to be under the Spirit's control is to mean that we are going to be people who are bearing witness to that control of the Spirit in such a way that we are edifying other believers. We are worshiping and we are really treasuring God in our hearts. We are thankful for so many blessings that God has given us. That tends to be something that we're aware of on a regular basis. And we mutually are submitting to each other in the fear of Christ. So the main verb here is verse 18, be filled. And then verses 19 to 21 are really verbal nouns, if it were, participles that are connected to the main verb in 18. So when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit, we are thinking our thinking and our behavior are dominated by the truth about Jesus. Uh, if you look at John 16, Jesus reminds us that the Holy Spirit's role, one of the ways in which his ministry was, is to uh, show a spotlight onto Jesus and remind us, remind the world about Jesus, how awesome, how wonderful, how uh, he is to be adored, he is to be treasured, he is the one who is uh, the one that we greatest have need for him. And so the Holy Spirit is pointing to Christ. And so the, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit means that we are going to be brought to the place in our life which the Holy Spirit warms our hearts with Christ. He reminds us of the love of Christ. He reminds us of the grace of Christ. He reminds us of the mercy of Christ. And he reminds us that because of Christ and his self-giving love, the Spirit then begins to develop in our hearts a sense of gratitude, a sense of wonder and amazement, begin to worship the Lord and worship Christ and realize Oh, what an amazing, undeserved benevolence he has shown to me in the gospel. And then the Spirit applies to our hearts this fresh appreciation of Jesus' selfless subjection of himself to the Father and giving of himself for us and sacrificing himself to save us. You say, well, I don't think about that very often. To be honest with you, that's not really the way I live my life. I, I, I have a couple times in my life, when, in my week, in which I, I, that, that awareness is sort of on my mind. And sometimes when I'm listening to music, maybe, or sometimes when I've just finished my time in the Word, you know, I did finally read the Scriptures. Sometimes at church, I'll think about these things. But, you know, I don't really have that kind of ongoing awareness. And that's why verse 18 is very important to understand. We shouldn't be surprised about this. None of us should expect to live a life of continual experience of inner joy, gratitude, and sweet appreciation of Jesus 24-7. That should be a, a, a comment to help give you a word of encouragement. I'm not saying you should, you, you should uh, ignore this command. I'm saying the command is in the present tense in verse 18. 
Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Implying what? That there are times where we're not filled with the Spirit, and so we need to go and submit ourselves back and have the Word of God begin to impact us again and point us to Christ and get our minds and our hearts in the right direction again. It's not something that's all the time working. So therefore, you should understand it is something that you're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you and have your mind impacted by the Scriptures and turn to Him for under His control. And the only way our selfish hearts will turn outward is when our hearts become satisfied with Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry then is to set before us the gospel of grace in such a way that we realize that we are made for God and that we will never find our meaning, we will never find our significance in any other imperfect person in this world. You will only find it in Christ. And when you serve the needs of somebody else, when you yield to their preferences as your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's only going to happen when the Holy Spirit is helping you do that. When your heart and mind have been so filled with the Scriptures and the Scriptures are pointing you to Christ and the Holy Spirit is reminding you of the wonders of Christ and as you begin to wonder how Christ has dealt with you, that is when your heart is going to be more likely inclined in that direction. But when you are resentful, and when we're harsh in our attitude toward other people and indifferent, maybe just saying, I can't be bothered, don't want to hear about your problems, get away from me, i got to live my own life, i got enough problems of my own. When you become defensive, you can't deal with people who bring to your attention anything in your life that might need to be changed or addressed. When you're irritable, when you're bitter about the past, you're easily angered, you're hypersensitive to how people are dealing with you, it's very likely, it's very likely, I can't be absolutely sure, it's very likely that your heart may be focused on yourself. Your, your, heart, your heart is not focused on the, the Holy Spirit who's giving a spotlight ministry about, into the love and the grace and the goodness of Christ and the gospel. You become so focused on yourself. And so you say, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, remind me once again of who I am in Christ. Remind me of your love for me. Remind me of the wonders of my Savior, his, his selfish, uh, selflessness giving himself for me. And so it's a constant need to pray throughout the day for the Lord to help us in this awareness. And the Spirit of God can help us do what would be otherwise impossible for us to do, and that is what? Think of ourselves less. The gospel will help us in thinking of ourselves less. And when our minds are convinced that Christ, in Christ all of our needs are met, we're more likely to no longer look at people around us as our saviors or as someone I need in order to be saved as a broken person. I need Christ more than anybody and anything. All right, I hope this is making sense to you. I don't know. Anyway, it seems to be helped. it was helpful to my heart as I'm pondering all these things. I want to move now to my third point because this is how we take that jigsaw piece uh, verse 21, we've looked at what preceded it. Understand that you've got to understand the Spirit helping us do these things. That's the only way we'll see a change. But then look at what flows from verse 21, which he begins now to make an application of verse 21. And this is where I talk about the gospel provides equal opportunity application. <laughs> he's going to take this principle and he's going to apply it to a number of different situations. Now, some of you may be saying, all right, this sermon sounds rather idealistic. You know, this doesn't sound very realistic at all. 
And so I want you to listen to how Paul takes this and applies it to real life situations in which we find ourselves in every day. You say, well, I'm not married. Okay, he has other areas of application here. Um, and let's look at how he does it. Submitting to one another takes place in some of the most challenging human relationships that we encounter. What are those challenging relationships? Those are relationships where people are either responding to authority, that is, someone has authority over me, well, that's tough to be able to respond to them by the help of the gospel and the Spirit of God, but what if you're a person of authority and you have responsibility to exert authority over people in a way that honors God? What does that look like? And how does that relate to this idea of submitting to one another in the fear of Christ? Well, I would just say back, if you just sort of want to summarize the whole thing here, the Apostle Paul gives us a number of practical things. First of all, he says, we must learn to yield ourselves to God. That the idea of submitting ourselves to each other is, a, is the overflow of a heart that says, I'm submitted to God, first of all. And I believe that that's what is this text is going to show us in verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 22, all the way down to 6, verse 9. I'm not going to be able to unpack all this for you. I'm going to run out of time. So I want to encourage you to read that through yourself sometime later today and to think to yourself, the gospel calls us to redirect our lives from living for ourselves to living to what? Please God. That's my main purpose. That's my goal in life as a Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. You might want to jot that one down, reread that one, and think about that. Put that on the mirror of your, uh, in your bathroom, put it on your dashboard, your car, and think about this verse. Christ died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That's what we tend to do naturally. But we're going to live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so the idea of living for Christ in whatever situation he assigns me in is how I'm going to learn to live out this principle of Submitting to one another. So, if, for example, he talks about wife, a wife there, verses 22 to 24. A wife who is secure in the gospel is able, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to defer and follow the lead of her husband, even when her husband's leadership is imperfect, it may be inadequate, it may be inept and lacking. But a wife who says, I'm here. Uh, by assigned by the Lord in this situation, and I am going to therefore yield myself to say, I'm going to try to help my husband be the leader God's calling him to be and do it in such a way that I show him respect. I'm not going to belittle him. I'm not going to try to argue him down into where I have to have control over everything that happens in our home. I'm going to learn to say what? I'm By the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to remember who I am in Christ, and I'm going to deal with him in that way. Only by the Holy Spirit's help was that ever going to happen. And that's what the gospel is calling the wife to do. The gospel, on the other hand, says to the husband, he is not to exert authority like it's lording it over his wife, as if he is the, the brutal, uh, chauvinistic husband who doesn't care about what she thinks, just do it my way. That's not the picture at all. He's laying down his life for her. He's imitating Christ in his love that says, I'm devoted to you as I exert a shepherding kind of loving authority in this home, a selfless devotion to his bride, the church. That's what the gospel will enable him to do, which is certainly not the norm, nor is it something natural. And then you have children who are 
called by the gospel to submit to their parents' authority, obeying their parents within the parameters of what's appropriate biblically in terms of their duties. We understand there are these limits to submitting to authority. And as they celebrate the gospel, parents then are to what? Yield themselves to God and realize that they are not to make their children into some sort of means of accomplishing and meeting all their deepest needs for their own sense of importance, but these children belong to God. Therefore, I am to relate to them appropriately as belonging to God, and therefore I will not exasperate them. I will not exert authority over them in such a way that I wear them out, giving them unrealistic expectations or demands or asking them and living my life through them in some way. And finally, he says to employees, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 6, by the power of spirit and through the gospel, they are to show forth this gospel grace in their hearts. They're in the workplace. You say, come on, in the workplace? Oh, yes. They're going to submit to God, giving themselves to God for their day of work. And as they do so, they say, I'm here to give a full day's work to my employer. And therefore, I am to seek to honor God by saying, I'm going to do what the, my boss has asked me to do. I'm going to give him a full day's work. If he's paying me, I'm going to do that full day work. I'm not going to slack off when the supervisor's out of the room and nobody's watching what I'm doing. I'm going to sit there and shop online. I'm going to sit there and text people all day, goof off for an hour or two. I know I'm going to give myself to my job, and therefore I'm going to honor Christ by what? Submitting to him. I'm submitting to my boss. And Jesus says, you know, Paul says, the ultimate boss you have, if you're a Christian, is the Lord. He says, you're working for the Lord, ultimately, not just your human boss. And therefore, you work for him to honor him in the workplace. But then Paul comes to the other side and says, okay, if you're an owner, if you're a person who is a master, in a sense, a business owner, you're a boss, you're to live under the authority of Christ, too. So he calls them to yield to the guidelines that God has given us in treating those employees that are under his care, under his employment, with respect. Treat them fairly. Deal with them honestly. Show respect to those employees and don't abuse them and take advantage of them. And so it's interesting how Paul takes all of these different situations in life and says, this is how to play this thing out in terms of submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now you can do these things for all the wrong reasons. You can do them to advance yourself, to advance your career. You can do them to have a perfect family that everybody's impressed with. You can do them to try to get your way by, by uh, somehow uh, uh, trying to get your spouse to do what you want them to do. You, there are many reasons you could do these things for all the wrong reasons. That's why Paul says, out of a reverence for Christ, learn to yield. Learn to say, Lord, I submit to you and I submit to the people that you've put in my life. It's not all about me. It's about you working through me that people might be impressed with you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I don't know about how these seeds of this passage are landing in the hearts of people who have been listening, but I thank you that we're all here today being reminded, Lord, of what we need to be confronted with in the gospel, and that is we need to see ourselves as we really are. We're all desperately in need of a Savior. We're all so focused on ourselves. We're all so focused on getting what we want, being in control, having our way, getting other people to do what we want them to do, and trying, Lord, desperately to 
become complete people apart from you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help all of us uh, who are gathered here today as we hear about, Lord, some of the reasons as to why we live. I, I pray that you would turn those today, Lord, away from ourselves, that we might be a people who want to please you and that we might, uh, Lord, um, surrender to your ways as we think about Christ and what he's done for us. I pray, Lord, you would help those of us who are in situations that are difficult in human relationships to learn to defer and to submit to other people around us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us. Point us to Christ, I pray. Fill our minds with reminders of who, Lord Jesus, you, how you, Lord Jesus, have done these things for us. You've submitted yourself and laid down yourself for us. And so, Father, I pray that the gospel will become a powerful dynamic working among us and then therefore impacting many people around us for the glory of your name and the things we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do is I'd like us to uh, sing our final song here this morning, um, which is called uh, Surrender All. <laughs>